0: Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and for the entire show, it's our special Mother's Day celebration, and we're going to be telling stories about mothers, mothers of very famous people, and people you know, and also mothers of people you don't. Up first, Kevin Durant's mom, Wanda, and we all know Kevin Durant if we're sports fans, and we probably know him even if we aren't. He was born in 1988 on the tough streets of Washington, D.C., found his way to Prince George's County with not much but a mother who cared. She pulled him through everything, and times were hard. Kevin made his way to the University of Texas, where he was a real star, and then wound up in the middle of the country at Oklahoma City for the Oklahoma City Thunder, where guys named Harden and Westbrook also found themselves as young athletes. Three Hall of Famers, on the same small Midwestern city's basketball franchise. And in 2014, Kevin Durant won the MVP award in the NBA and gave a speech that anyone who saw it could not forget. Here's Kevin talking about his mother, Wanda.
1: And, And last, my mom. I don't think you know what you did. You had my brother when you were 18 years old. Three years later, I came out. We were stacked, the odds were stacked against us. Single parent with two boys by the time you were 21 years old. Everybody told us we weren't supposed to be here. We moved from apartment to apartment by ourselves. One of the best memories I had is when we moved into our, our first apartment. No, no bed, no furniture, and we just all sat in, in the living room and just hugged each other. Because we, that's what we, we thought we made it. And when, you, when something good happens to you, I don't know about you guys, but I tend to look back to what brought me here. And You wake me up in the middle of the night in the summer times, making me run up a hill, making me do push-ups, screaming at me from the sideline of my games at eight or nine years old. We wasn't supposed to be here. You made us believe. You kept us off the street, put clothes on our backs, food on the table. When you didn't eat, you made sure we ate. You went to sleep hungry. You sacrifice for us. (laughs) You're the real MVP.
0: And that was Kevin Durant speaking directly to his mom, Wanda, who was sitting in the front row. You're the real MVP. And so many of us feel that way about our moms. By the way, there wasn't a dry eye in the house watching a man almost seven feet tall, a wicked competitor, break down and cry in front of you. It's enough to make you cry all by itself. Next up, Denzel Washington. Everybody knows him as an actor. Few people know his faith walk and much about it. I'd urge you to watch the movies Flight and The Book of Eli, and you'll know what I'm talking about. It's a fundamental part of his life. He was the son of a preacher father and a mother who ran a beauty salon. There was a divorce. The mom became the anchor of Denzel's life. Here's Denzel Washington in 2015 at Dillard University, an historic black college, one with a rich, faith-based tradition. And he gave an unusual and riveting commencement speech. This first part was dedicated to his mom. Let's take a listen.
2: You graduated. You did it. You made it. Congratulations to you. And you did it all by yourselves. Nobody helped you. <laughs> no, that's that's what, you know, that's what I thought when I was, uh, When I was young, I uh, starting to really make it as an actor, I came in, I talked to my mother, I said, Ma, did you think that this was gonna happen? I'd be so big and I'll be able to take care of everybody and I can do this and I can do that and I can. She said, boy, stop it right there, stop it right there, stop it right there. He said, if you only knew how many people that had been praying for you, how many prayer groups she put together, how many prayer cloths she gave me, how many times she splashed me with holy water <laughs> <laughs> to save my sorry behind her. She said it. She said, oh, you did it by yourself. i tell you what you can do by yourself. You can go outside, get a mop and or a bucket and wash them windows. You can do that by yourself. Superstar.
0: Superstar. And you can just imagine the influence his mom had. All those prayer groups, all that support in front of him and behind him, and even when he wasn't looking. And all that love. And next up, a story about his mom's salon and a woman in that salon and the kind of culture that she created for her boy so that he could come upon a story and a prophetic vision of one of a mom's beauty shop customers. Let's take a listen.
2: Forty years ago, just this past March, I was flunking out of college. I had a 1.7 grade point average. I hope none of you can relate. (laughs) At a 1.7 grade point average, I was sitting in my mother's beauty shop and I'm looking in the mirror and I see behind me this woman under the dryer. And every time she looked up, she every time I looked up, she was looking at me, just looking me in the eye. I didn't know who she was. And I said, you know, she said, somebody give me a pen. Give me a pencil. I have a prophecy. March 27, 1975. She said, boy, you are going to travel the world and speak to millions of people. Now mind you, I flunked out of college. I'm thinking about joining the army. I didn't know what I was gonna do and she's telling me I'm gonna travel the world and speak to millions of people. Well, I have traveled the world and I have spoke to millions of people, but that's not the most important thing, the success that I had. The most important thing is that what she taught me and what she told me that day has stayed with me since. I've been protected I've been directed. I've been corrected. I've kept God in my life and has kept me humble. I didn't always stick with him, but he always stuck with me. So stick with him in everything you do. If you think you want to do what you think I've done, then do what I've done and stick with God.
0: And you've got to know that that came straight from mama because it did. And he was a Fordham University student at the time in New York in the in the Bronx. Denzel Washington, Kevin Durant, their moms' stories, more mothers' stories continue our celebration of Mother's Day here on our American Stories. We return to our special Mother's Day celebration here on Our American Stories, and up next, Steve Harvey, and you all know him. And I'm not sure you know much about his life, but my goodness, born in Welch, West Virginia, the son of a coal miner, he's been a boxer, an auto worker, a mailman, and an insurance salesman, and the list is longer, and hustled always. He became a finalist in the second annual Johnny Walker National Comedy Search in April of 1990, and the rest, well, is history. He went to host Showtime at the Apollo, became a public face, did stand-up, an ABC show, a big national radio show which still runs, Family Feud, again, as iconic a name as there is in show business. And his mother, Eloise, well, my goodness, you're about to hear what a central part she played in his life. Let's listen to Steve Harvey talking about his mom.
3: She went to church all the time. Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. We skipped Thursday, Friday. We missed Saturday and Sunday, both morning and night service. That's prayer meeting, Bible study. Choir rehearsal, usher board meeting number one, two, three, four, and five. I, I really was considering going to hell at one point because <laughs> I thought that it was just too much church. But her image, her concern with image was everything back then. You got to dress up to go to church. That was her thing. It's, it's, it's been instilled in me. I, I dress up all the time. I think about her when I'm tired. Ty-
0: He's choking up here, folks, so consider that in this pause.
3: You know, they uh, they asked me to do this. I said I'll take a shot at it, you know, but uh, it's a difficult thing for me. Okay, I uh, can only hope that in everything that she's taught me that uh, somehow she's somewhere watching me. I hope that I've made her. Uh, proud of the man I've turned out to be. Uh, haven't always been who I should have been in my life, but uh, I was trying. And I look at my life and where it's turned out. I think about all of the moments of things she taught me about acts of kindness and how to treat people and don't do nothing to a woman that you won't nobody do to your mama, or your sister. I remember her talking to me about respecting women. And if you can ever grow up, do something on behalf of women. Always honor them, son, because you'll need them until the day you leave here. I remember that. I remember her lessons about faith. She taught me to pray. She taught me about the weapon of prayer how vital it is, how important it is. Whether you believe that or not, that don't really matter to me. It has worked for me every single time I've used it. So as I sit here on a set that's mine and a TV show and everything else I got, it's because Eloise Vera Harvey taught me about the love of God and the respect of people. I love my mom.
0: And you were just listening to Steve Harvey choke up. He could barely keep it together. Don't do nothing to a woman you wouldn't do to your mama or your sister, he said. Honor women. And she taught me to pray and the weapon of prayer. And he wouldn't apologize for that. And no one should. There he was honoring Eloise. But Steve Harvey wasn't done. He had another woman in his life to honor, another mother, who also happened to be his wife.
3: So, Marjorie's here all week to help me uh, pay tribute to mothers, but I have a confession to make. You're really here, so I can honor you.
4: Don't make me cry, all right. Did you guys
5: lie to me? (laughs)
3: Yeah, they lied to you. Uh, um, oh I, I want to share some things with you, Marjorie, that, um...
6: They just did my makeup and we spent <laughs> a lot of time.
3: I, I wanted to tell you some things. And that, um, from the moment I saw you, when you walked into that comedy club that night, and the first thing I said to you, ever, was, I don't know who you are, lady but I'm gonna marry you one day and it took me a long time but I did it um, truth be told I probably should have done it a long time ago but I went off and I got stupid I did some things you know I like to say I had some regrets in my life but I, I needed everything to happen in this exact order because None of our children would be here today if we hadn't have gone our separate ways at that particular time. So it was all for uh, divine purpose and order. But what you've done for me is you allowed me to stop existing and to start living. I never lived. before I met you. So, um, listen, you uh, you did some things for me. In my life, you you made my children comfortable. They'd never been comfortable before in my previous life. You made my children have a place that they could come to finally call home. What you've done for Winton, what you've done for Winton in balancing his life out, he was so far behind that you dropped everything and turned our son into an AB student. I can't tell you what that balance has done for him. I had stopped listening to music because I was in such a dark place. You know, I didn't listen to music anymore. And as much as I love music, I play it for a living on the radio, but I lost it. You gave all that back to me. You, you made me comfortable with my fame. I never. I never even enjoyed my fame. I was truly the tears of a clown. I needed you. I needed you so bad. Uh, I was in a dark place. And uh, I'd never been happy before. And along you came and you are you are already happy and for the first time in my life my job was not consumed with making another person happy I discovered you can't make another person happy and it's not even your job to make them happy but you made that possible for me you exposed me to travel I didn't go nowhere I had money and I didn't go nowhere. I went to Vegas. That was it. You've taken me places around this world I never would have gone. You know, you've made me that, the happiest man I, I've ever been. I'm, I'm, I'm by far, without a doubt, the, 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 I don't want to say lucky. I am the most blessed man. I love you, Harvey.
0: And you've been listening to Steve Harvey talking to his wife, and so much of that love has to do with her role as a mother in his life and his own kids, and bringing that sense of balance and that sense of unconditional love to him. I was truly the tears of a clown. And he's breaking up saying it, and we're sort of breaking up listening to it. Steve Harvey's story, his mother's story... His wife's story and what she did for him and his kids. More of our celebration of Mother's Day here on Our American Story. is our American Stories, and today we have a feature from one of our regular contributors, Stephen Raciniak. This piece is titled, Happy Birthday to Us, a Tribute to His Mother. To read this story and its backstories, please visit stephenraciniak.com That's stephenraciniak.com. Here's Stephen sharing his story.
7: It was just what I wanted. It was the perfect present, a one-size-fits-all, something that I had long thought of buying for myself, but never did. But somehow, my mom, with her special maternal instincts and motherly radar, with her uncanny ability to glean information from snippets of overheard conversations, figured it out, all by herself. And in the end, she gave me that one gift that I had truly wanted. Nothing else could ever say, Happy birthday, son! like a large gift wrap box containing a brand-new Sawzall reciprocating saw. Well, at least I'm sure that's what she was thinking that year. And to be honest, I couldn't have agreed with her more. Two months later, I put my newest favorite tool through its paces while volunteering with my church on a mission trip to Appalachia, where we were helping to make the homes warmer, safer, and drier. My trusty saw and I quite capably resolved a plethora of challenging cutting circumstances with ease and efficiency. And one night, as I was reflecting upon its versatility, I suddenly wondered. What could I have possibly done to deserve such an awesome birthday present? And then, an even greater question came to mind. What does anyone ever do to deserve any special recognition for nothing more than to have been born? Both questions somehow intrigued and yet bothered me at the same time. It occurred to me that aside from being the blue-eyed, blonde, babbling bundle of joy that caused my parents' world to change from that of being a team of two to becoming a family of three, I have done absolutely nothing to merit being the fortunate recipient of birthday cards and gifts, of salutations and recognition. It also occurred to me that if there was any one person who truly deserved acknowledgement for enduring nine long months of daily discomfort, which included morning sickness, indigestion, anemia, swollen ankles, if there was one person who was deserving of birthday kudos for once upon a time being pregnant and then giving birth to a toe-headed little kid who would one day grow up to become a happy and healthy, reciprocating, saw wielding adult, it was my mom. After all, should all the pertinent details pertaining to my ultimate appearance in this world be made known, this much would be readily obvious. I had nothing to do with my own birth, except, of course, to have been present for the festivities. Suddenly, it seemed wrong for my mom to have done all of the work, and for me to receive a lifetime of April birthdays blowing out the candles on my forever favorite and beloved strawberry shortcake. So it was that night in Appalachia, and as I packed away my saw, I knew that I was going to have to do something about this birthday recognition business. The following year, and on the morning marking the date of my birth, I surprised mom with a beautiful floral arrangement. My way of acknowledging and sharing with her our special day. I would do this several more times over the coming years, as we would mutually note the anniversary celebrating the arrival of her firstborn, me. Now. Getting these annual arrangements to her wasn't always as easy as I might have liked, because this senior citizen Nana led an active life, one spent in perpetual motion. Knowing this, I soon discovered that it would be her schedule and her circumstances that would dictate when and where she might receive the annual acknowledgement recognizing our auspicious occasion. While some of these deliveries were certainly dispatched to her home, not all of them were. Once, I surprised her by placing them inside her car outside the deli where she often stopped for a mid-morning cup of coffee. Another time, I had them delivered to the hospital information desk where she was volunteering, while still, another year, She found them inside the room housing the food pantry at my church, where she spent time sorting and bagging donations for distribution. Although the delivery locations, and as well the arrangements themselves, would differ from year to year, the one thing that never changed was the verbiage on the enclosed card. My handwritten message to her was always the same. Happy birthday to us. Love, Steve. I think that she grew to expect her annual floral arrangements, and I was more than happy to provide them. They were beautiful reminders of our birthday bond. The sun was moments from rising, and still the colors of spring were already clear to see. The bright yellow forsythias running the length of my neighbor's backyard the linen white buds on the dogwoods, the mulchy green colors of the emerging leaves high atop the oaks and the maples. I stood outside on that cool April morning, savoring my coffee and basking in the magnificence of this just awakening day. It was my birthday, and I was another year older. And Mom, well... She's no longer with us, but as sure as I knew that a strawberry shortcake was going to be in my immediate future, I couldn't help thinking about her. After all, it was our day. It will always be our day. And so I softly whispered, Happy birthday to us, Mom. And um, you know what? I'm pretty sure that she heard me. And you've been listening to
0: Stephen Resiniak, a beautiful story about his mom. A special thanks, as always, to Faith for the great work she always does on our pieces. And a special thanks to Stephen for not only writing this, but for performing this beautiful piece. And my goodness, it's so true. What could I have done to deserve such an awesome birthday present? He asked himself when he got a reciprocating saw as a young man. And that the mom understood that was the dream by gleaning through conversations and snippets of conversations what he really wanted. And by the way, it's such a great point. The boy gets the credit for what? Coming out of the mom? I mean, the mom did all the work. And what a beautiful tradition to establish with your mother. Happy birthday to us. I wished I'd have thought of that. I lost my mom. But my goodness, I should have done that. I didn't ever think about that. Then again, my mom wanted it to be all about me. In the end, she wanted to know that I was unconditionally loved and did all the things any mom would do. I was lucky to have a mom who did all those things. And my goodness, that night in Appalachia, when he had that understanding, oh my goodness, I had nothing to do with my own birth. Mom did all the work. I get the birthday gift. We'd love to have your mother's stories. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. That's ouramericanstories.com. We'll be playing them all year long, not just Mother's Day, folks. We love mother's stories and father's stories all year long. Stephen Resiniak's story, his mother's story, here on Our American Stories. We continue with our American stories and our special celebration of Mother's Day. And now it's time for my own celebration of my own mother and her life. I wanted to start with a few quotes first from history and historical figures. All that I am or ever hope to be I owe to my angel mother. That was Abraham Lincoln. If evolution really works, how come mothers only have two hands? It's one of my favorite comedians, Milton Berle. Your youth fades, love droops. The leaves of friendship fall, but a mother's secret hope outlives them all. And that's the great Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of America's great jurists and moral philosophers. The world didn't notice when she died in December of 2012 at the age of 80. But those of us who knew her and loved her, we all noticed. We lost someone who lived for us, someone who loved us, someone who would have done anything for us, and her friends, even strangers. Christina Lapidula, my mom, came into the world in December of 1932, a pretty tough time to be born, you'd think. Though she grew up through the Great Depression and World War II, the stories of her childhood were mostly fond ones. She grew up in West New York, New Jersey, a densely populated town a mere three miles from downtown New York City. Like the neighboring cities of Hoboken, Union City, and Jersey City, West New York was packed with immigrant families from all over Europe. First-generation Poles, Jews, Irish, and German families all had distinct cultures, food, and languages. Her parents were both from Italy and came to this country with no money and no education. Neither could speak English. Like all of the immigrants in their neighborhood, her parents didn't come to America to change the country. They came to have America change them and the lives of their family. Her parents wanted their children to assimilate into the fabric of their adopted homeland and to do it fast. That meant no speaking Italian in the house. Luckily for her, the English as a second language movement in education had not yet been born. The school systems of the day didn't adapt to the kids. The kids adapted to the school system. My mom lived in a small five-story walk-up apartment with her sister Marie and her brother John. The streets bustled with non-stop action and drama, and though times were tough, my mom never really remembered many really hard times. I didn't know we didn't have much because no one else I knew had much, she would always tell us. We were never poor, she would always add. We didn't have money, But we were never poor. I remember my mom seeing some of the tough neighborhoods in the 60s and the 70s, and mothers pushing baby carriages and graffiti and just what had happened to the American family. And she knew it wasn't just lack of money that could explain it, given the time she'd grown up in. To have a family intact, and have families around you that are intact, and churches around you. And she was surrounded by Catholic and Protestant churches everywhere. It's harder to imagine the kind of poverty that we now know because there were kids who were loved by families. My mom met her husband-to-be in high school. She was the captain of the cheerleading team. He was the captain of the basketball team. And yes, these things happen in life. My dad was a, a stutterer and was shy about it and ultimately could have easily after some very good sporting years ended up as he put it in the penal system because he had a temper and he was angry at the world for this this affliction of stuttering and my mom knew it and ultimately worked with him loved on him and got him through college and he became an educator my parents got married right after dad graduated from college but they never took time to be a married couple. There were always kids. By the time they were 30, they'd had four of us to take care of. Were they ready for it all? Well, mom didn't ask that kind of question, nor did dad or any of them back in the 1950s. They were probably better off. No matter how long we delay such things, we're never ready. I remember as a kid looking at pictures of mom and dad Before they became the adults they became, they looked like grown-ups even in their high school yearbooks, as did most of their peers. Why did they sacrifice so much? We asked that a lot of both of them. I learned as I got older that calling what my mom and did a sacrifice irritated them. They were doing what they were supposed to do. No one back then thought postponing adolescence into their 30s was an option. They started things. They started lives. They started families and careers. One picture from their wedding is my favorite. The young bride and groom grinning as they cut their wedding cake, celebrating on a rooftop in a neighboring building. No wedding planners, folks. No exotic honeymoons. It was a drive up and down to Niagara Falls and back to life. One of the great gifts my mom gave me, along with my dad, was watching a marriage grow. In the early days, my dad had a temper. It actually scared all of us. He never hit anybody, but just the power of his voice, well, it almost made all of us cry. None of us understood what the fights were about, what kid does. They probably didn't know either. Sometimes I thought one of them would just call it quits. But always, always, the next day came, and there they were. As time passed, Dad's temper faded. As Dad's temper faded and he got more comfortable, the marriage settled. My mom had learned a lot. She picked less fights and just, with her patience, let him grow up. As I got older, I came to appreciate the small things, the daily habits and rituals that my dad and mom shared. Those rituals and rhythms of life gave me a great sense of stability, a great sense that relationships can last. That love can last. The coffee they had every morning. The daily run to the supermarket. The evening coffee out by the pool listening to WOR on the transistor radio. The early dinners at a local bar for pizza and muscles marinara. The card games. Mom always won them. The habits of love were there for me to observe and, later in life, to imitate. The love I witnessed didn't look like anything I saw in movies. It looked like something so much better. Something within reach, the constancy, the consistency, the mutual understanding. None of it was terribly exciting, but it was good for me. It was good for my parents, too. There's a line of theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who said this in a letter to his niece before her wedding, quote, It's not your love that sustains your marriage, but from now on the marriage that sustains your love. That lesson may be the greatest lesson my mom and my dad taught me. Marriage sustains love. The number of things my mom did for us, well, there are too many to count. But the thing we all most appreciated was her taking a job as a secretary at a local college, Fairleigh Dickinson University, so all four of us could go through college for free. And by the way, there were two years where all four of us were in college at the same time. By the way, my mom loved doing it, loved the work. But in the end, as we grew up and left home, a little part of my mom, well, just died. Because in the end, what gave her the greatest satisfaction was motherhood. It just did not work. She had a thrift shop called Anything Goes in our little town, and we're not sure whether it ever made money. Dad never came clean. He never told us the truth about that. But I always watched my mom give stuff away to people who couldn't afford it. The negotiation was always, I really can't afford that, Chris. And Chris would say, well, just pay me what you can. Not exactly the way forward for a great business enterprise, but I think my mom ran that business just to just keep her maternal instincts going and just continue to help and serve folks. I also remember my mom as a warrior. An African-American couple moved into town with a beautiful family. And there were some efforts to resist this. And It's called blockbusting. That was the discrimination pattern of the North. The South had theirs, the North had, well, we had our own too. And I'm broadcasting from Oxford, Mississippi, and speaking about segregation in New Jersey. But it happened. And my mom fought that. She remembered as a young Italian girl being called WAP and Dago, and Italians did not get perfect treatment uh, from their white European brothers and sisters. Uh, It was rough go, and my mom also always stood up for the young Jewish kids in the neighborhood. So discrimination was something she just didn't, well, she didn't stomach well. The other big memory I have is of my mom sharing with me one day, as she gave to me the Purple Heart and the picture of her brother's tombstone in Saint-Laurent, France. She lost her brother in World War II, he was a paratrooper and was killed in France not long after D-Day. And I was honored with that presentation. My mom gave it to me, and it hangs in my office still. My last memory of my mom is at the nursing home. I remember those last days, I would always take the late shift, and I would sneak in cigarettes for her, more menthols, and I would sneak in a really good meal there. She said, the stuff here is rubbish. You can't eat it. And so I would bring in all the food she wasn't allowed to eat, and we'd go outside in the dark and in the cold at midnight. I'd turn on that transistor radio and put on her favorite station, try and catch some Sinatra oldies, and she would puff away and then slice up a good steak with some of the great macaroni and cheese at the diner next door. And those are the fondest memories I have of my mom. Those are just some of the stories I remember. So many more I don't have the time to tell. The life of Christina Lapidula... Christina Habib, my mom, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating Mother's Day all hour long, all show long, and we're telling stories about mothers of famous people and people you know, and also mothers you've never heard of. Up next, a story about a mother from Wisconsin, born and raised in Illinois, but she settled down and raised a family in the Badger State.
4: Well, growing up in the late 40s and 50s was, you know, like happy days. Nobody knew that they didn't have what they didn't have. And I think that's one thing that's stuck with me through life, that no matter where I was, what stage, um, I was happy with that stage. I mean, I didn't have, I didn't lack for anything.
8: This is the voice of Katherine Murphy-Burke affectionately known as Murph.
4: One of my earliest memories was my mother taking me down to the train station to meet her brother, my uncle, who was returning from the war. He was a, he was a doctor, but he was in, I think he was in Germany during the, during the war. And I remember, you know, she had me all dressed up, and she was so proud to show me to him and I think I just understood the importance through my uh, intuition of, of this, this whole time was a very important time, not only in my life, but in all of our lives.
8: Murph was born in 1943, just two years before World War II would end.
4: Even though things might have been very slim, but I didn't know that. I think I was raised to feel feel good about things and to feel feel loved and protected. We moved to a, a house that we lived in for the rest of my growing up, probably moved in there when I was about four years old, and it was on the corner with a few extra lots around it. It was a city street in Springfield, and they, my parents were very protective, immediately um, installed a um, cyclone fence around this entire yard to protect us, not because they didn't like anybody, but because they loved us. It was a confined childhood that way, and I read a lot. I think my siblings also read a lot. And my brothers, of course, they had to keep them active, so they did you know, sports, uh, little league baseball, et cetera, et cetera. So it was a happening scene around our house as with any large family. I think it was quite amazing. Faith had a lot, faith and religion had a lot to do with everybody's upbringing back in those days, as far as I know. And I can remember, you know, saying the the evening rosary. <laughs> and We would, Mother would have us all kneeling around the bed, and we'd be saying the Hail Marys and the Our Fathers, and half of us would be sound asleep. On the bed. <laughs> but boy, I don't, I, It seemed like she did that forever, but I don't know really how long it was. And then of course we went to the Catholic school three blocks away where the nuns were um, not the most pleasant people in the world, Um, but they were the boss. Of course we went to um, uh, school in the morning and then it was almost like an extra credit thing to go to mass before school. But what we mostly did was go on Friday morning mass, because they had they served breakfast that day, and they had these really scrumptious. We called them butter cakes. So I mean that was that was how deep our faith was, as deep as the butter cakes. You know, mother kept a close eye on us, uh, that we didn't uh, get in too much trouble. Although one of my brothers was asked to leave. <laughs> at, Before eighth grade, so they put him right, he went right into high school. I mean, he was so smart. (laughs) But he did things like uh, put uh, firecrackers in the choir loft during the Gregorian chant. (laughs) So it was hilarious. And I think the nuns probably, you know, probably laughed at it too, but they couldn't put up with that. And I'll remember my, I always remember my mother when I was a little girl saying, now don't forget, you're Kathy Murphy, and you can do anything in the world that you want to, which was a great, great thing to say. And actually, my mother was a private duty nurse. My father was a hospital administrator accountant um, who worked uh, for different orders of nuns and hospitals around the country, and neither one of them were college-educated mother was an RN back when being an RN was, you know, that was a big time job. 12 hours a shift for private duty nursing, $5 an hour, $5 for the pay period. Back, you know, early 40s. And that was, you know, the end of the uh, Depression era. But so my siblings and I are the first in our family to have gone to college. Nothing was dearer to my parents' hearts than having, you know, then being able to educate us.
8: No surprise here, Murph was a National Merit Scholar, and she received scholarship offers from all over the country. But she ended up in Milwaukee at Mount Mary College.
4: It was my father's decision. (laughs) His precious cargo had to be protected. Mount Mary was a fine school, but their hours were 5.55, which (laughs) meant we had to be in the dorm, at five minutes to six in the evening, for the evening, and six o'clock we sat down for a, at a formal dinner. Those of us that were there agreed that we, you know, we wouldn't have wanted things any differently as we look, as we look back, because the world was so different then. It was peaceful and quiet, and we just uh, had a lot of fun inside, doing crazy things like moving the statues around. After dinner, we went to our rooms and then Uh, From like 7.30 to 8, we could go to the smoker to smoke. And then back to our rooms, and then lights were supposed to be out at 10 o'clock. But, you know, you could put a towel under the the door so nobody could see the light type of thing.
8: So how many times did you
4: sneak out? Oh, quite a few. (laughs) One time my parents found out. I was the only one that never got a blanket permission slip saying that I could leave for the weekend or go to somebody's house. So... I just did it. And then one time they called and I wasn't there. Oh, that got pretty hairy.
0: (laughs) And you're listening to Murph Burke, her story, her life, and a bit of her mother's story. And when we come back, more of this Midwestern story, this Wisconsin story. In the end, this Milwaukee story here on Our American Story, celebrating Mother's Day all show long. return to Our American Stories and Murph Burke's story and brought to us by our Crackerjack storyteller, Sarah Moore. And we just learned a bit about Murph, a responsible girl, but the oldest of seven kids and a bit mischievous, challenging even some of her parents' rules. And my goodness, any kid who doesn't do that, at least a bit, is, well, not much of a child. And she's the first in her family, by the way, to ever have attended college. And now, the story of who she met and how she fell in love.
8: It wasn't long until Murph met the man she would marry. His name was John Burke. They met on a blind date.
4: It was all set up, and so John called me on a Thursday for the Saturday date. And he said, well, here's the deal. Um, uh, I'll pick you up for this afternoon football game, which was the college guys playing football. At Marquette, he said, "I'll pick you up, and we'll go to the football game. And if I like you, I'll take you take you to a to the party that night." And I said, "Okay, it's a deal." And we've been dealing ever since. <laughs> sort of a crazy, wacky real estate guy, whose father had been in real estate too. So that's just when the light bulb went on in John's head, and he knew that, you know, entrepreneurial development was his his dream, and so he did that, you know.
8: Neither Murph or John came from much, and when they married, John's father sent them a check for seven hundred and fifty dollars. At the time, this was a lot of money to them.
4: And it was up and down, and you know, taking chances, and he he did that very well. And you know, I always support you know supported him emotionally through all that because, well, that's what that's what a, you know a wife did and he was doing interesting things, and he didn't come home for lunch. So <laughs> he was out learning the whole topography of the whole area, you know, and then buying properties and um, learning everything about everything there was to know about this whole area that he could utilize in entrepreneurial development. It was always sort of, you know, two steps up and a step back, or the t- tax laws would change. the interest rates would go up so that projects he would, was building became much more expensive to build. But he always figured out a way to, you know, to make things work. And I, I don't know if we ever felt like we ever really made it. You know, it was just ongoing with life. Of course I wanted him to succeed because I wanted to be able to feed the kids. and and there again, we lived um, a simple life, but there was never anything that we, that we wanted for.
8: Together, the two had five children, Wendy, John III, Molly, Patrick, and Rory.
4: Well, I think demanding respect was the only way to maintain control. And I don't mean control in a, in a bad way, but, um, you know, you have to, you're the one responsible for these children. So you have to respect that, first of all. Then you have to respect them as separate entities and not merely extensions of yourself, which I've seen lots of people do. And I, I sort of, I call it the little league mentality. People live through their children, it's, you know, and you see it most, obviously in little league, I think, because the parents just get blown away if the kid misses a catch for example but it was always I respected them I would like to say I commanded respect uh, and of course those things don't work perfectly all the time and sometimes you have to pull in the reins wait a minute you know, these kids are getting way out of line and as soon as I would do that they would come and hug And that that led me to my philosophy of The security of discipline. When people know what their limits are, they're happier, they're peaceful, and they're able to grow because they're just not oozing out all over the place. They know there's a wall there.
8: Murph clearly set the terms. Commit to a certain level of work, hold a certain GPA, and she let her children pick where they went to high
4: school. And so when he went, the oldest went to University School. Um, son John went to Marquette High School, and Molly went to Dominican High School. And these were all three disparate schools in disparate areas. But as a result of that, their friend friends groups all intermingled. So they they all knew, you know, three times as many people as they would have if they'd all gone to one school.
8: It was in the blink of an eye, Murph said, that she and John found themselves not just with five children, but ten grandchildren. And just before the tenth grandchild arrived, they found out that John had dementia.
4: John decided that it was going to be very important to have the 50th wedding anniversary party. And uh, so he started planning it. And this was also—he has Lewy body dementia, so this was all already all progressing, but it hadn't been named that yet. So, and he figured that his this condition was due to a couple falls he had taken and hit and hit his head, which really wasn't the case. But that's what he chose to believe, which is fine. So he wanted to have this big party, and we'd had a history of big parties out in our yard, and that was his really his last hurrah, that party. And then he got up and, and talked about how he was gonna be going downhill. And he explained that it was because he had taken these falls on his motorcycle. you know. <laughs> but it was just sort of, um, it was very nice and tender. And he did a great job with that. You know, it was just, that was sort of the end of the public stuff. And then I would, you know, I, he still traveled. I took him places, not realizing that I was, you know, compensating for everything. I did, but I didn't, you know, I could do it, so I did it type of thing, so. And then finally got to the point where he just really couldn't go any place anymore. and he went into the hospital and went into a rehab for a while, and that's led us to where we are now, which is where he's permanently living at Silverado, where he can remember 40 years ago, but he can't remember breakfast. But he's comfortable, he has no pain. And we're just waiting to see the rest of the story. You know, it was all part of a marriage, you know, making making him comfortable, making things work and being around. So there really is no, you know, good answer for that. It's just like, you got to do what you got to do, and you do it. And then finally, um, after having him with round-the-clock care at home for two years, where he was still able to be up and around, you know, but he he couldn't be by himself because you couldn't trust what he'd do. So after two years of that, um, it was just time Um, it was like every day there was a new test, a new, a new problem. It was like getting, you know, bonked every day, but I just got through it, you know, and whether it was something breaking in the house or whatever it was, but there was something, I mean, you can't, you couldn't foresee any of these kind of things. But, you know, I just take it a day at a time. I never realized I was strong, you know, until my friends started telling me that in my 40s. You know, you're really a very strong person. I thought, who, me? I just did what, I just did what I was capable of doing. And so I'm hopeful that I can keep up that same, although diminished level of strength going forward and, you know, come to the end of of this, this life and this planet um in a in a good way
8: after murph and i had sat down for this interview john passed away on january 25th 2019 at 77 years old but as murph put it he was peacefully born to eternal life on that day
0: And what a story you're hearing when we come back, more of Murph Burke's story, our special Mother's Day celebration, for better or for worse, moms, wives, always there, unconditional love. Well, this is what moms do best. Murph Burke's story continues here on Our American Story. To the story of Murph Burke well we thought it would be interesting to interview her children without telling her and ask them what they remember and admire about their mother and their upbringing. Now here's Sarah Moore with Murph Burke's children.
8: Meet Rory Foley, youngest of the Burke five, now married with two children of her own. I am
6: the daughter of Murph and John Burke. I am number five out of five. My mother always told me that I was the only one who was planned, (laughs) which was always a sort of funny joke because I still don't really know if it's true or not. Um, And let's see, I haven't, there's three girls and two boys and it goes girl, boy, girl, boy, girl. There are 10 years that separate my oldest sister, Wendy, and me.
8: And this is Molly. Number three in the Burke family lineup.
9: Molly Murphy Burke, and then when I got married, I became Molly Murphy Burke Sloan. So I also have Murphy as a middle name.
8: I asked both Rory and Molly, what was it like growing up with Murph running the household?
9: I was the middle child of five. I had an older sister, older brother, younger sister, younger brother. My oldest sister and my older brother were Irish twins, 13 months apart. And then 17 months later, I came along. So my mom had three, pretty much under three, three and a half. So that had to be quite a handful. I can only imagine. And then um, there's a 10-year span between all five of us. So we were all pretty close. It's interesting. We grew up in the same house that my dad grew up
6: in. At a certain point, um, before I was born, my parents bought the house that he was raised in from his parents, and then they moved down the road. So our grandparents were down the road, and we lived within biking distance to the, maybe within, I don't know, less than a mile to St. Eugene's, which was our family Catholic parish, and where everybody went to grade school, although I never finished grade school there, I was... I went to another school after that, but the all five of us, it was just sort of a, I wouldn't say a motley crew, but, you know, it was a bunch of little kids running around. Um, my oldest sister understood that I was her, or she thought that I was her baby, and apparently she prayed every day when she was, you know, eight, nine years old that God would give mother another baby for her. <laughs> and God did, and so she, I was always found on the back of her bike, riding around. She took me everywhere. I was sort of her little living doll. We had great family vacations. Murph Murph drove this old, always had this old station wagon, one of those woodies that had the wood sides and her um, vanity license plate said Murph. So I remember riding in the back of that because I don't think there were quite technically enough seats for all of us in there, but being the youngest, it was sort of, you know, no seat belts, just flopping around in the back.
9: Every time I think about my mom, the first thing I think about is her driving us around in her station wagon, tapping her thumbs to her 40s music, and all of us, you know, in the background, I'm sure yelling. I can't imagine. She always seems so calm and tapping her thumbs on the steering wheel to the music and um you know that was something i'll always whenever i think of her i think of her like that as well as um she and my dad would go out a lot and i just remember watching her get ready and it was like oh she's so beautiful and uh sorry i'm getting emotional um you know and just watching her as a child going oh she's she's just got she's just got it all together and um so anyway um sorry about that um sorry both my parents um, they loved our family unit like the five kids we were like the team i mean all of us we did so many wonderful trips we spent every summer at elkhart lake which is a lake house about an hour north of milwaukee where we could run and be kids you know back in the 70s just doing whatever we wanted you know be home by dark kind of thing and they t- and exposed us in- to their love of travel i can think back on all the trips that they took us on and i'm like boy were they brave to take five kids to jamaica in the 80s for a week or i i give my mom a lot of credit because it was probably more like six kids because my dad was probably the biggest kid of all of us. He was the one who was the craziest and said, hey, let's go do this. And we we were willing, we'd say, okay, dad, let's go. And my mom probably was there rolling her eyes going, I hope this works out okay. <laughs> I loved being
6: the youngest because I think I probably had it a lot easier than all of them because as my parents got older, And, um, you know, their perspective changed and I think they're, (laughs) they mellowed out a lot. And they, um, I mean, it was fun. It was fun to always have commotion and being the the littlest one, having four other people to look up to. And, um, you know, there was always action. When I was little, I was born with congenital hip dysplasia, um, a condition where my hip was out of socket. And they didn't find that at birth, but my dad found it soon after. Maybe I was, I don't know, six months old, which led to a bunch of um, body casts for me and a surgery at age two. And um, I just remember my mother always telling me the story how I was, you know, a few months old and I weighed, I don't know, 11 pounds and had... um, 17 pounds of traction on my legs and I would, we were in the hospital and I would slide up the bed and every few hours she'd have to pick me up and put me at the bottom of the bed. And I just remember these pictures of her being so young, looking, and then having me, this child, you know, in these casts. And maybe now I just cling to that because now being a mother myself, it's, it's so poignant to, to think of all the things that she did that I was unaware of until I am now a mother and how grateful I really am for what kind of mother she was.
9: My mom is an amazing cook as well, even though every morning as and for breakfast she would just lay out the cereal and uh, she'd be reading her paper drinking coffee while we'd be fighting over the green sheet to try to get the comics so we could read the comics before we went off to, on the school bus. Um, I just have great memories of her always making meals and all of us always standing around, when's dinner? She would make these wonderful, um, we call them duckies or ricotta balls, like donuts and stuff that she sort of fashioned um, after beignets from New Orleans because that's one of her favorite cities. So I just have so many memories of her, um, you know, making just amazing meals. And And as an adult dad to contend with every night And we had a sit-down meal every night, as my mom's doing, saying, you know, this is, you know, set the table. And that was part of our daily life. She was so, I don't know, filled with this sort of quiet,
6: elegant wisdom that was there and firm, but um, so, I don't wanna say subtle as if it wasn't important, but it wasn't, um, you know, she was not a yeller. She didn't yell at us. She just instilled with us these values sort of in this um, gentle, firm, and loving way.
9: I didn't grow up with parents who were just my friends. I'm not afraid and to say no to my kids and not be their friend and to be their parent first because that's their, my job. And I'm sure I learned that from my parents because my parents always had our back but they challenged us to, you know, um, do the right thing even when no one was watching.
0: And you're listening to Murph Burke's Children, and my goodness, all parents would want to hear, well, words like that spoken with such, well, such honesty and directness. She was firm, she was gentle, and you just hear kids not gushing, very matter-of-fact, uh, just singing praise to Mom in a, in a very direct way, in a very beautiful way. When we come back, we're going to hear more of this remarkable lady's life. And there are so many moms like Murph Burke. There are Murph Burks all over this country. And we're celebrating them here on Our American Stories with one specific Murph Burke, the Murph Burke, if you're in Milwaukee. When we come back, more of this remarkable American story here on Our American Stories. Turn to Our American Stories, here's Sarah Moore with the rest of Murph Burke's story.
8: Rory is not only a mother of two, but she's a sculptor and an artist based out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin.
6: As far as I can remember, I just always was drawn to making things, creating things and
4: painting. I always knew or felt that she was... An artist, And I don't say that lightly. I mean, somebody that can really, you know, see and do things. And so she did well through high school. And uh, she was applying to a lot of different schools. And I said, well, just do me a favor and fill out, you know, the application for Rhode Island School of Design. She said, oh, Mom, I would never get in there. You know, that's silly. You know, I said, just please, just do it as a favor for me this is my fifth child so and so finally um, she she did that so she slapped together the res- the whole portfolio that she had to have that you know a reg- you know a regular application would have taken a long time and you know fine tune the work and stuff well she really slapped it together and used some things she already had or whatever and um, she they they had admitted her right away it was just, I mean, I say, well, I was pleased but not surprised. <laughs> and so, um, she went, uh, so, she went, so to, she went to RISD, and I drove her out to college, drove her out to Providence, Rhode Island, with the, you know, with the SUV full of all of her stuff, and we get there, and um, um, the sophomore students were tasked with, un, you know, with helping the freshmen move in, and so I get there and I look at this bunch of people, these eighteen and nineteen year olds, and I'm just oh I mean there was some there was one guy that became a good friend of Roy's who had so many piercings, I don't think he could have gotten through a metal detector at the airport. I mean, these guys were, you know, and they that's the way they thought they that's what they thought they were. You know. Let's be as freakish as we can be, let's be, you know, as artistic as we can be you know of high purple boots and long you know long black hair on these guys i mean just you know just well it was just not a pleasant sight for me a little mid- midwesterner mother but um and i was leaving my my youngest child there and so i was i you know i stayed in town a couple of days cuz she didn't move into the dorm right away but that was sort of a gradual process so she, then i'm I had to leave to drive back to Milwaukee, but I had to stop in New York City for a couple of days for a couple of meetings. So I'm, um, and this was maybe like, what would it have been? 95 or, yeah, maybe 1995. Um, and so we didn't have a car phone, didn't have, you know, anything like that. Um, and so as I'm leaving my hotel in New York, she calls, oh, hi, Mom, how are you? I said, well, "I'm fine. How are you?" Now this is the kid who didn't talk to me for four years in high school. Now she's calling to chat. I'm, hmm. Okay. I. She said, "You know, I'm thinking of dyeing my hair." I said, "Oh, and this was just out of the blue." And I said, "Well, you know, um, that if you're if you're going to do that, your hair's so dark, you better you know you'd have to bleach it out first to be able to get the kind of color you want." I'm just blathering because I you know didn't know how to respond, and uh, so. I said, listen, I've got to go now. I'm checking out of the hotel. I'll call you when I get home. So I left, and I'm driving west through, you know, Pennsylvania and Ohio and Indiana, and finally I get home to Milwaukee at about, say, 2 o'clock in the morning. And I've just been, you know, mulling this over the whole drive, and I just didn't have any any idea what, what to do. So then I went to bed, went to sleep, and I woke up about 6.30 in the morning I thought, that's it. I've got it. So I called her and I said, Rory, I said, I don't mind if you dye your hair, but if you get any strange piercings or tattoos at all, you're out of there. We're not going to, we're not going to you know, pay for your schooling. And she said, oh, thank you, mom. <laughs> Because it gave her the security of discipline again that she could tell people, if I do that, I'm out of here.
9: When you expect stuff from your kids, they rise to that expectations and want to do the right thing. So I believe I was held up to that, and I do that to my own kids today. And we
8: all get along. (laughs) You've met Murph. You've met her daughters. Now meet the third generation. Here's Murph's namesake, Murphy, the oldest grandchild, From the Burke family
5: when we spend time together usually when we have breaks either I have a break in school or something our time is usually spent with Merce together somewhere and also um, this current year I was a freshman at the University of Georgia and I joined a sorority and Merce actually flew down for my parents weekend so I got to spend the weekend with her and show her around my new life so that was really special But her favorite story? Mom always was like, Merce does not bike. Like, she doesn't (laughs) ride bikes. She just never was her thing, you know? And so I'd never seen her ride a bike until this past Thanksgiving. We all were in Hilton Head, and us kids were at the house. It was me, my sister, and I think one of my younger cousins, and Merce. And we all were like, well, let's go meet everyone. And it was, like, probably a mile to where everyone was eating lunch, but we all had bikes. So um, we were like, oh, let's all go. And we had one tandem, one tricycle, and one tiny little bike for my cousin. So we were like, hmm, how are we gonna do this? Are we gonna put Mers on the tricycle or the tandem? Both, not very good options. But <laughs> Mers decided to get on the tricycle and it was the first time I had ever seen a bi- her on a bike in my life. and. It- Tricycles, like, even I tried to ride the tricycle, and it was really hard. It was kind of terrifying because we were riding in the road. When cars would come, like, the tricycle was really hard to steer, so she kept, like... Just like tilting her body and steering off the road and me and my sister were on the tandem not really able to do much help because we're kind of struggling too. So we're just watching her like, oh my gosh, what is going to happen? And then our cousin who's like, he was like six or seven was like, come on guys, come on. Why are you going so slow? And we're all back there like, (laughs) like relax, relax. That was really like something I'll never forget watching her bike for the first time that I'd ever seen. She's never afraid. She'll try anything. Like, Mom and Rory and her family were sitting at the lunch place like, where are they? And then we showed up with Merce on a bike, and they were all like, what is going on?
9: You know, she'll say, oh, sure, I'm game, even when it might not be in her complete best interest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But she's yeah, she's never really been one to be scared, at least in my mind. I can't remember her ever... Being scared of anything, whether it's talking in front of a huge group of people or, you know, taking one of us um, off to school or to, you know, to driver's ed or any of that kind of stuff. She was always game.
8: Molly has three kids and lives in Colorado. Rory has two, the youngest two grandchildren. They wanted to share something with their grandmother as well. And we'll hear from Fletch first because he's already five years old. Fletcher, Fletcher Donnelly Foley. And what are your most favorite things about her?
9: Um, she let us play with, in the pool. Uh, I love her.
8: John, named after his grandfather, goes by Jack.
9: My name is John Murphy Foley. Uh, I think about, she is super nice and lets us play in the pool. Sometimes and and she is a little funny because um she says like, like big friendly ghosts are real. No, they aren't all well, on TV.
8: If you were to leave her a happy Mother's Day message, what would you tell your grandmother?
9: I love you and thank you. And thank you for sometimes letting me have one of your gummy bears. Um I love her more uh, and she lets us play in the pool and us um um have some gummy snakes
8: And here's Murphy again on what Merce means to her.
5: I've been really blessed with not only my family but all the opportunities and experiences that I've gotten to have just because of her.
9: And I would say that um, I am looking forward to the next time I get to be with her because home is where your mom is. And uh, I really can't wait to go home and be with
8: her. Murph, you are so special, and you are so grounded. Thank you for who you are, and happy Mother's Day.
0: And my goodness, what a beautiful way to end our Mother's Day celebration all around this great country. Daughters, sons, grandchildren, giving that same universal message. We love you, Mom. And Murph has accomplished so much in her lifetime. She's a mover and a shaker in her community. She's an art lover and a major patron of the arts. She's involved in urban renewal and prison reform efforts in downtown Milwaukee and all over the country. And she's invested time and resources into bolstering the education systems in Wisconsin. That maternal instinct, it just never dies. But most importantly, she is a mom and a beautiful one. There's nothing more beautiful, folks, than that. Merv Burke's story, the story of so many moms across this great country, celebrated here on Our American Stories.